Many of us feel unworthy to be used by God. We can feel under-equipped, like we don't have the right things, uh, we don't know what the right words to say are, we're not trained uh, to be used by God in ministry. Some of us feel anxious, uh, we feel like uh, we can't go out and say things to people because we're worried about their response. Some of us are simply just time poor, we don't have the time, we don't have the resources to do these things, uh, we're constantly at work, we're constantly busy. Um, others of us are just exhausted from the week. Um, a lot of us struggle to do the things that we feel like God has called us to do. And I think, uh, for me in particular, the thing that I struggle with is being overwhelmed by the need in the area, being overwhelmed by how much need and how many people need to hear the gospel and how many souls need to be brought, uh, underneath the rule and reign of Christ. And so Paul he looked down at the Roman Empire, this huge, giant behemoth of an empire with five million pagan souls, and he waded into that with the gospel message of Christ. One soul at a time, he went preaching the message of Jesus. And as he went preaching this message of Jesus, he turned that whole empire upside down, one person at a time. And often we can feel under-equipped. We can feel like we uh, don't have the time, we're too anxious, or we can feel overwhelmed by how big the task is to want to see Australia one for Jesus. But we've got to do it the same way that Paul does it, one soul at a time. And so Paul's going to show us here in Ephesians how we can meet that need, how we as a church can be living up to the call that we have and how as a church we can be proclaiming the wisdom of God to the world and to the heavenly rulers. And so let's get into it. So the Apostle Paul, he earlier calls himself a steward. Do you remember that? He's a steward of, of, of this grace that's given to God, this message, uh, this mystery that was given to him that the Gentiles are included in the promises. But here now he calls himself a minister. He calls himself a minister, a servant. It's the way we get the word deacon in the Greek, diakonos. That's how, uh, and, and this word carries this uh, concept of being a servant, um, but also a leader, someone that has control, someone has uh, authority over something. And so Paul, he's empowered, he says, by the working of God, God's power for his ministry. The Holy Spirit actually equips Paul and moves Paul where Paul needs to be in order to be the person that God has called him to be. And so whenever God calls anyone, any person he calls into ministry, he equips them. He gives them what they need and he sends them out. Every single person that calls on the name of Jesus is equipped for their ministry. They are equipped for wherever they are, whether they feel it or not. And so everything they need, everything that Paul needs, and indeed everything that we need is given to us by the Holy Spirit. It's by the working of God's great power that this message goes out. And God, through His Holy Spirit and His sovereignty, saves souls and brings people underneath His rule and reign. So all your gifts, your talents, your skills, they're all given by God for your ministry. And it doesn't matter what they are. Because people have come to faith and people have been invited into the church through different things. I've heard stories of people hearing the music in the church and wanting to hear what that beautiful noise was and coming in and seeing the whole congregation singing and the worship leaders worshipping passionately. 
And their gift for music is used to glorify God. And that person was then invited in and then became part of the church and became a Christian. And it doesn't matter. Sometimes it's just hospitality, inviting people over, um, making meals. If meals is what you do and cooking is what you do, do it for the glory of God. Use all your gifts and talents to move people towards the kingdom. Uh, God gives all sorts of people, evangelists, teachers, um, and all of us to some extent have these gifts and have these gifts of being able to share with people. You don't need to be um, some crazy Billy Graham sort of evangelist in order to affect the world for Jesus. Because we are empowered individually with the Spirit, but individually we make up the church which goes out and shares the gospel. We work together. It's these gifts that bring God glory. And so Paul, paradoxically, was the perfect man for the mission to the Gentiles. Now, what do I mean by that? Because if you know who Paul is, then you know that he's not the perfect man. In fact, he is a very imperfect man for this mission. If you had a list of a thousand people who you would want to put in Gentile missions in the early church, Paul would be like 998. He would be right down the bottom of the list. If you were looking on the outward appearance, you would see, here's Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees who hates pagan Gentiles who would have spent all his time despising them and rejecting them. And not only that, he was a persecutor of the church. You wouldn't look at that man and say, like Jesus did, you're going to go to the Gentiles. You're the one that's going to go to the Gentiles. In fact, if I was going to put Paul anywhere, I'd put him in Pharisee ministry. I'd want him to go out and minister among the Pharisees. And yet God in his infinite wisdom knows where Paul needs to be is so much more different than where we thought he needed to be. You see, God looks on the inner heart, whereas we look on outward appearances. God looks at the heart, we look at outward appearances. You can read that in um, when David is being called. You, you have this king, King Saul, who was this great king. Uh, he was head and shoulders above other people. He was handsome. People looked at him and thought, that guy is a king. That's the king we want. But when they looked at David... Well, David wasn't the same. He wasn't as impressive on the outward appearance. But who was the better king? Well, God looked on the heart and he knew that David was different than Saul. And that is the same with all of us, really, is that God can take anyone and he can make them do a complete 180. And he can make anyone equipped to do ministry among any group of people. So it doesn't matter what your background is doesn't matter where you came from, where you think even your skills and talents lie, because God will use you for his glory. But you've got to be living for his glory. If you want to be used by God, you've got to make yourself available to be used. But if you're living your life for yourself and your dreams and your own ambitions, well, unfortunately, you may find that God will not use you as you hope he will. And so God looks at the inward heart, we look on the outward appearance, but we are weak and God is strong. And Paul knows that, doesn't he? Because Paul knows that to be true. Verse, uh, verse eight, he says, I am the very least of all the saints. Uh, literally in the Greek, he is the leastest, the least of the least. He's the bottom of the barrel. If you got the bottom of the barrel, he'd be right at the bottom Right there, it doesn't matter where you, where you look, Paul knows that he is a sinner. He does not deserve the grace that God has given to him. He does not deserve 
any of the blessings he has in his life. He recognizes this. He says he is a sinner. He is the least of all the saints. In 1 Timothy 1.15, he says, uh, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul knew how much of a sinner he was and how undeserving of grace. He knew that what he was doing, he did not deserve to be doing. He didn't deserve to have the fruit that he had in ministry. He knew that he was the least likely person to go and reach the Gentiles. And yet there he was, turning the Roman Empire up on its head. See, Paul was grounded in reality. This isn't rhetoric. This isn't superlative. He's not just throwing it out there. I think Paul genuinely believed this. He believed that he was the worst of the worst, a sinner just like the rest. And he is aware of his sin. And he's aware of his sin before he met Jesus and was changed. But he's also aware of his sin even now, even his failures now, even this great man, the Apostle Paul, who had accomplished so much for God, was still aware of his sin. And we can never move from that. We can never move into pride and arrogance and feeling like we're great because Paul knew where he was. Now, some they share their story. They're almost kind of proud of their sin. They're almost proud of who they were in their previous life. They think it shows them uh, to be authentic. You know, it makes them sound really genuine. It makes them sound like they know what the real world is. They were out there in the darkness. They know what the world is. And all those other church people who are sheltered, oh, they don't know what sin is. Like, I know what sin is. You know, they, they feel like, you know, their battle scars are something to be proud of. But Paul's not like that here, is he? He doesn't look at his former life and think, oh man, I'm proud of who I was before Jesus. I'm proud of my sin and what I did. He's not like that at all. He's not like, yeah, I murdered people and all this stuff and look how genuine and you know cool my life is. No, he recognized that he was a sinner before then and he was ashamed of who he was. He was ashamed of who he was. He was aware of how little he deserved God's grace. And so we shouldn't idolize our sin. We shouldn't hold up people with intense testimonies and think that their story is more genuine and they must be more authentic than we are because we were living in rebellion. And if living in rebellion to God is a cool thing, if that's something that you want to aspire to be, that's something that you want part of your story and you feel, uh, I guess you feel like, oh man, I wish my story was intense as that person's, well, you're missing the point. It's not about your story. It's about God and His grace. It's about what God has done for you. So never, ever take pride in your sin, in who you were, but glory in what God has done. If The only thing your sin shows is how great God is and how lame you were. And don't forget that. See, Paul's story, his, his testimony, it leads to a purpose. It leads to a purpose, just like our story leads to a purpose. Verse at the end of verse 8, for Paul, it was to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. The riches of Christ. That theme we've seen popping up, it, it, was, it was saturated in Ephesians 1. We saw that pop up so many times, riches in Christ Jesus. It's such a central theme to the book of Ephesians. I remember, uh, Remember that you had to come hungry every week to Ephesians. You had to come willing to see how just, how rich you were, the benefits you have in Jesus. And if you haven't seen throughout the book of Ephesians just how blessed you are in Christ, then you have not been paying attention. 
You have not been listening to the words of Paul. And so riches, man, when was the last time you were just in awe at how good God is to you through Jesus and how much you have because of Jesus? When was the last time that you were thankful for what God has done? See, Paul says, he doesn't just say riches, he says unsearchable riches, unfathomable. You cannot, you can plumb the depths of the gospel message in Christ and you will never hit the bottom and you will always find new things. You keep digging, you'll keep finding God. No matter how deep you go in the gospel, it's unsearchable, it's unfathomable. You'll never be able to fully wrap your minds around it. And that is a great thing because that means there's more joy to be had. There's always more joy to be had. And so for Paul, being able to proclaim and preach this message was a privilege above all privileges and honour above all honours. He was willing to pay any price that he had to pay in himself to see people want to Jesus. Now, that's an amazing story of God's grace, isn't it? From where he was to where he is now. But he didn't make that. It was God. It was God. So remember that God has a plan. Remember that God has a master plan. That's what I've titled uh, the series, that it's God's master plan, because God's plan came from before the foundation of the world. God actually intended for all these things to happen. You can see it in, uh, in verse 9. He, it was this plan that God had to, that all of his grace was going to unfold across history. And we were going to see just how far he would go to rescue and ransom sinners and bring them to himself. Uh, verse 9, he says, to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. See, the salvation message was hidden to people beforehand. They didn't know what it was. Before Jesus came, they didn't know what Jesus was going to look like. They didn't know how he was going to rescue people. They didn't know how sin was going to be overcome and how God was going to redeem all of creation. But when Jesus came and died on the cross and we saw all the Old Testament promises fulfilled in him and the inclusion of all the Gentiles, we can see that God's message and God's plan was good. That God's plan was good. We see that this was brought to light. Before we were in darkness, we couldn't see it, but now it is brought to light. It reminds me of that passage, uh, Ephesians 1.18, you know, by the Spirit having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. That moment when you realized that God would save repentant sinners and that all you needed to do was have faith in Jesus and your life was transformed when, uh, when all of that was brought to light in your life. This is for everyone. It's for everyone to see. This isn't hidden. We don't have some secret knowledge. It's not like you have to join Christianity and then move up into the ranks and then we'll tell you a little bit more of the truth of God. We lay it all bare. This is for all people to see. The message is for everyone. There is no one that we would keep this knowledge from. If anyone wants to access uh, the scriptures, everyone has that access. And so the Old Testament promises before were unknown, but now they are fulfilled in Jesus. This is what Paul is saying. It's a mystery that's been revealed. The mystery is no longer a mystery. We know what the answer is. We know what it means to be in Christ. And it was revealed to the world at just the right time. Now, I've been asked before, 
You know, why did God choose this time? Why didn't he choose another time to send Jesus? Why was it 2,000 years ago that God did all this? I don't know. I, I can't look into behind the curtain and, and see into God's mind and see why he did things. But I know from the scriptures that he did it at the right time, according to his purpose, when he wanted to do it. And who am I to question God? Who am I to question God? Acts 2.23, Peter says this, and there are a bunch of crowds that have gathered at Pentecost. Some of these people in the crowds were the ones who crucified Jesus. And this is what Paul, uh, Peter says to him. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See, it was God's foreknowledge, his definite plan, his master plan. This is the way that he wanted this to turn out. He purpose for Jesus to die. He purposed for the Gentiles to be brought in. It's not a contingency plan. This isn't plan B. This has always been from the foundation of the world, God's plan for his eternal purpose for all time to rescue and save. There is a redemption history right from the beginning, right from when the, the prophecy is made of the seed of the woman in Genesis, right until we see Jesus' last words, it is finished. So God's plan from the beginning is to save sinners from all tribes, all nations, all tongues. The message of the gospel has gone out. And God's not just redeeming for himself his people Israel, but he's redeeming all people. See, God's master plan of salvation, it's across all history, all time. And when you get a bunch of changed people, when you get a bunch of changed people in God's plan, they form a church. A bunch of people that come to faith in Jesus form a church. They gather together. They can't stay away from each other because something amazing now has happened. And it shows the whole world the manifold wisdom of God. Verse 10. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church gives proof to the wisdom of God. When you look at the church and you see all different kinds of people in the church, it proves the wisdom of God in bringing those people together. Who does it prove it to? It says the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul says uh, in, in Ephesians 6, 12, he says, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is who he's talking about. There are dark spiritual forces in the world and they have real authority and claim over the nations. And those nations belong to them and they keep those nations in darkness so that they won't see the truth of God. But now, God through the church out to those Gentile nations that are owned by those rulers and authorities have now... God been redeemed and all these Gentiles are coming to faith. All these Gentiles that were once under dark spiritual control are now being brought into the light. So this battle is spiritual. It's not against flesh and blood. See, people are in spiritual bondage outside Jesus. Without the light of the gospel and the Holy Spirit, they're in big trouble. They need Jesus. 
So uh, you can clearly see this in Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He says that he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. See, God is like slowly checkmating all the dark spiritual forces as he brings more and more people into his church, as he brings them into relationship with him, those dark spiritual forces can do nothing but watch. They can do nothing but see it happen. And man, it bothers them. It gets on their nerves. They have to watch as all of their kingdoms, all of the people that belong to them are being taken away. And God is taking them, these pagan Gentiles that were once so under the sway of the Roman gods and giving their worship to demons, are now moving into the church. They are now moving into the realm of their enemy. And it bothers them. But it's not just these dark spiritual forces in the heavenly places that see this. For instance, uh, Jesus says in Luke 15, 10, he says, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. It's not just the dark spiritual forces that see this, but it's also the angels who see this. And there is joy in heaven over every sinner who repents. And there is joy in Paul's heart over every single Gentile who comes to faith in Jesus. There is big joy if you're on God's side. But if you're not on God's side, well, there is pain, there is misery, there is loss. See, a church of repentant sinners is a dangerous thing to Satan. A very dangerous thing. And he's going to try to destroy the church. Whatever ways he can, with whatever tools he has. Normally, he'll attack the leadership. If you attack the leadership of the church, you can throw doubt and suspicion on a church. Uh, it makes if, if the leadership in the church have committed some terrible sin, it creates huge ramifications. We're always reeling when we hear about the sins of some big pastor somewhere and how he's fallen into this thing and he's been tempted by the devil and it drags Jesus' name through the dirt as the rest of uh, the society looks on and, and, and thinks they know what the church is and thinks they know what Christians are. Satan loves to do that. What does he do for the members? He'll tempt them the same way, but their ramifications aren't the same. Generally, he'll go for comfort and ease. He'll tempt the churches towards their own comfort, towards their own ease. See, a comfortable church is really no threat to Satan. A comfortable church poses no threat to him. But a risk-taking church, a church that takes risks and goes out and doesn't care what the outside world thinks of them, but would rather care what God thinks of them, that church is, oh, that church is dangerous to Satan. And he'll do whatever he can to take it down. And it reminds us that through the gospel, Jesus has already won. He has already won. They just have to sit and watch as Jesus claims people. So, Christian, don't grow weary. Don't grow weary as you struggle to save the souls of men and women. As you struggled with the gospel, sharing the news of Jesus with people, don't grow weary. Don't let Satan tempt you with comfort and ease. Don't let him tempt you to move away from what God has called you to do into your own ambitions and your own dreams. Because they're futile, they're temporary, they will fade. But every soul that you are a part of in bringing to Jesus has eternal purpose. 
Everything you contribute to the church has eternal purposes. God has an eternal purpose too that we see in this passage. It's the salvation, the salvation of the gospel going to the ends of the earth and saving people of all nations. So we're included in this. Verse 11, he says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in him, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. See, in Christ, we have boldness before the Father. In Jesus, we have access to the Father. We can come into his presence without fear, as long as we're clothed in the blood of Jesus. Because unless, if we're not clothed in the blood of Jesus, we definitely cannot enter into God's near presence. It's only through faith in Jesus that we have this kind of boldness and you have this kind of confidence. Without Jesus, really, there is only terror. The terror of God. The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We can only enter God's most heavenly courts through the blood of Jesus and the righteousness of Jesus, being clothed in Jesus' blood. That is the only way because God is a consuming fire. He is holy. He is righteous. You can't come into the presence of God without Jesus. If you were to come into the presence of God without Jesus, you would be consumed. God is holy. You have to treat him with reverence and awe. He's not your buddy. He's not your homeboy. God is God. He is holy. Don't be a fool. When I was uh, 15 years old and I thought I'd stumbled upon atheism as if I was, you know, this new thinker, um, this sort of free thinker. I remember having a conversation with my nana and telling her, you know, quite proud and arrogantly, you know, God doesn't exist. But I remember saying to her, if he does exist, well, I'm a good person, so I'll be fine. So in the end, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter whether God exists or doesn't, because if he does exist, I'm just going to be in heaven anyway. Don't be a fool. Don't be like me. I am an absolute, I was an absolute fool then. An absolute fool. You know why? Because I had no idea who God is. I had no idea who he was. And if I even had the faintest clue of who God was, I would never have said that. Because I know now from the scriptures that God is holy. God is a consuming fire. I don't get to call the shots. I'm just a human. I'm just a mere mortal. God is immortal. God is the king. He is holy. He is righteous. He is a consuming fire. Now, if I look back, I should have trembled with terror at the thought of coming before God, having rejected him and lived in rebellion to him. But now that Jesus has entered into my life, that fear, that fear that everyone should rightly fear, feel before God is now replaced with boldness and confidence. It is now replaced with access to the Father. Before I didn't have that, but in Jesus, we all have that. So never take for granted your access to God because it was one with blood and suffering. It was won by Jesus 
bearing your sin on a cross. Apart from that, all you had was terror and fear, falling into the hands of the living God. Tim Keller says this, The only person who dares wake up a king at 3am for a glass of water is his child. We have that kind of access. In Jesus, we have that access. Through his blood, we have access to the Father. We have that kind of access that can wake a king up at 3am. Never take this for granted. Paul leaves us as one more thing. Verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So Paul is in prison and he's suffering. And he doesn't want people to lose heart over it. He doesn't want the church to lose heart because we know how much the church loved him. We know how much when Paul was about to leave, he's about to get on a ship and he was never going to see them again, how much they wept at the thought that they would never see Paul again in this life. The elders of the church, the people of that church loved Paul and Paul loved them. And so he knows they're going to be concerned because he's in jail. And he knows they're going to be concerned for him. But he doesn't want them to worry because his suffering is for their glory. His suffering is for their glory. Well, what does that mean? Well, we know that Paul is God's instrument of bringing the gospel message to the Gentiles. He's bringing out this salvation message And when anyone is saved by this message, well, it's their future glory. Their future hope is in that message. So the fact that Paul is in prison for preaching that message, he doesn't want them to worry about it because he's doing the very same thing that brought them salvation, that brought them into glory. He's in prison for sharing the gospel and it was for their benefit that he's doing it. It was for their benefit because if he had not risked his life, if he had not risked his freedom for that church, the church would not exist. But it's because of Paul's um, effort and how Paul suffered and now he's in prison. He's saying it's for your benefit. It's for your glory. I did this for you guys. I did this for you. But even more than that, he did it for God and he did it because that's what Jesus has called him to do. He did it to glorify his father in heaven. And so Paul doesn't want them to focus on the fact that he's in prison. In fact, he has something far more greater that he wants them to focus on. And that's the content of the book of Ephesians, the letter to the Ephesians. He wants them to focus on the riches they have in Jesus and the access they have to the Father through him. Don't focus on the fact that we have to suffer, that Paul is suffering and that he's in prison. He wants them to be saturated in love for their Saviour. And so temporary worries, it can distract us from what is really going on, from the real perspective, how we should be viewing things. Temporary suffering gets in the way of us seeing the world for what it needs to be. And Paul is not letting the fact that he's in prison take up all his thoughts. He's not letting the fact that he's in prison uh, take up all his energy because he has a plan, he has a mission. And while there is breath in that man's lungs, he will be bringing the gospel message to Gentiles. And man, wouldn't that be great if we had that same passion? If our passion was as long as there's breath in our lungs, we will be proclaiming this message. As long as we're alive, we're going to be sharing the gospel. Whether in prison, whether free, whether we're suffering, whether we're not, 
The gospel message is always on our lips. Imagine that. Imagine a church like that. Imagine how much that would change the world. See, temporary worries distract us from the real perspective we need in life. So this letter that Paul is sending, he wants to keep first things first. In fact, he hasn't really mentioned the fact that he's in prison until now. And he's only mentioning it to say to them, don't worry about it. It's actually for your benefit that I'm here. So remember this faith that gives us access to God. Because God is a consuming fire. And it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Unless you're clothed in Jesus. And then you can boldly approach the throne of God. How about we approach God now? Let's pray. Father, we know you are holy and you are righteous. And that we are completely undeserving of any grace that you have given us. Lord, I pray for some of my friends who may be proud and arrogant, who may feel that in and of themselves that they are good and that they don't need Jesus. Lord, would you humble them? Would you bring them low? We know, Lord, that you look upon those that are humble and contrite in spirit, that beat their breasts and know that they are sinners and know that they need your rescue. Lord, help us live repentant lives. The fact, Lord, that we can be even praying to you, that we could even be coming before you is such an amazing thing. Help us, Lord, we pray. Help us to live in the spirit, to be moved by the message of the gospel and to respond with eager anticipation of sharing it with others. Thank you, Will, that you've done this work in us. We pray you would do it in others. In Jesus' name, amen.